0: Hello, Daniel, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation all day, all yesterday, even two days.
0: Oh, right. Well, I'm glad I could keep you waiting.
1: <laughs> right. All right. So a lot of times people know who I'm talking to already. And in your case, I I think some people may not know who you are in the Ruby and Rails community.
0: You think maybe one or two?
1: <laughs> right. So uh, why don't we start there? Why don't you introduce yourself?
0: Well, my name is Daniel Jalkett, as you probably know from the uh, title of the episode, and uh, I am an old, old-school Mac developer who started off at Apple in the 90s and stayed uh, with Apple through 2002, transitioned from working on Carbon, old-school old, old school Mac OS 9 and 8 and 7 stuff uh, onto working on Mac OS 10, learned Objective-C at Apple, ended up quitting Apple, uh, Long story short, I run a small software company now, Red Sweater Software, and um, I probably best known in that scene for um, having blogged a bit over the years and developing, uh, continuing the development of an app that Brent Simmons started called MarsEdit, which is a blog editor for the Mac. So, so
1: I've tried. To- I was trying to figure out before I called how you were first known. Was it? Were you known before you? purchased MarsEdit for blogging or something else, or was that the thing that got you more notoriety?
0: Uh, but I had a small amount of notoriety within the sort of greater Apple developer scene, uh, and that was probably rooted in the fact I was blogging pretty prolifically on uh, the Red Sweater blog at the time. And I was you know, blogging about developer-oriented issues, but also sort of just blogging about anything technical that I cared about, so it was a little bit of a kind of... "Quote unquote punditry platform for me, and I got some, you know, I got some notoriety uh, thanks to thanks to uh, folks like John Gruber at Daring Fireball picking up some of my posts. Uh, so by the time I, I actually had the opportunity, I think, to acquire Mars Edit from Brent Simmons, uh, or rather from the company he had sold it to, Newsgator. Uh, probably in part because I had this like baseline familiarity to a lot of people, including Brent and. Um, it made the story of me taking it over a little more realistic than if I was just some complete out of nowhere guy taking it over. So now are uh, you
1: the best known indie developer that bought another well-known indie product?
0: mm, I never thought about that. Uh, if you put it that way, possibly, uh, for a lot, for a while there, at least it was sort of a joke, a running joke that I was acquiring everything because I acquired two apps within the course of a couple months and I have not acquired anything since it's been, you know, I think seven years now almost since that happened. But what was the uh, second one that you acquired? Uh, it's a crossword app, black ink. Um,
1: oh, I didn't realize you bought that from someone else.
0: Yeah, it was originally, um, called, uh, Mac X word and, uh. I thought that that branding left something to be desired, so I changed the name uh, and somewhat pertinent to this audience's interests uh, and that not it wasn't wasn 't like it was written in Ruby or anything, but it was um, an example of um, needing to be language nimble because actually that app was written in Coco Java, which was a supported platform by Apple uh, up to a certain point w- you know in which you would write all of your cocoa you know, UI apps for the Mac in pure Java instead of Objective C. So, it was how are X- your,
1: how are your Java skills?
0: No, not good at all. <laughs> but I got. I'll tell you what. My skills uh, in that respect were um, being com- competent and confident about Objective C, and then getting really good at regular expressions for um, translating Java code into, into Objective C code. So I didn't want to have to rewrite this whole app from scratch. You know, it's the most boring kind of rewriting, too, if you're just like, I just need to rewrite this class exactly as it exists in yeah. another language. Um, and the good news is because it was, you know, folks folks uh, in your audience may not be completely familiar with Objective-C, but it's a um, it's a, a language and a runtime. So the runtime is the system through which basically, you know, instances of of objects in memory can be delivered messages asking them to do things, and um, the good news was that Java was just another language interacting with that runtime, so you could kind of port it over pretty directly with confidence that it's basically going to work as long as you are causing the same underlying messages to be sent, so it was really a lot of uh, syntax translation, but it ended up working, and it uh, got the job done shipped black ink. So now have you uh, have you not purchased other apps because
1: that was a you decided you didn't like that as much or, or as as you thought you would or or has it been that the Mars edit business has been busy enough that you just haven't had time?
0: It's mostly that that um, Mars Edit took more of my time. I mean I've been lucky that it's been as, as successful as it has been. You know, never as as successful as I wish it was, but successful enough that it has become you know, the basis of a full-time, full-time, you know, career for me. So when I bought MarsEdit, I had been working on some other smaller apps that, uh, you know, I sell directly, and uh, I was transitioning, kind of the whole point of buying MarsEdit was to transition out of being um, an independent freelancer. So I had, uh, you know, I had normal sort of freelance development gigs before, and the great, Opportunity of Mars Edit for me was that it, it ended up paying the bills, you know, with some work. It ended up paying the bills sufficiently that I could completely focus on on Red Sweater as a as a career instead of being this kind of dream side project. Right. So you mentioned something about the Cocoa Java
1: port of um, of Black Ink that that made me wonder something. So it it seems from listening to uh, Cocoa developers that regular expressions are not. It seems like they're a thing, like as in a thing that some people shy away from or that are seen as something that's sort of not, uh, I don't know, native isn't the right way to say mm-hmm.
0: it. But well, but not,
1: not native, I guess. And what's up with that? Because as a non-Coco developer, it seems super strange that regular <laughs> expressions wouldn't be part of just the normal day-to-day world.
0: Yeah. Well, part of it has to be rooted in the fact that up until very recently, relatively speaking, there was no, um, well, first of all, there's no language-based support for regular expressions in Objective-C. Um, so that's the first thing that gets people coming from a language like Ruby, where there obviously is. Um, and the secondly, there was no, uh, to, to, to make matters worse for, you know, people programming in COCO who would expect to use regular expressions, there was not even any standard um, framework support for them. Wow. So... <clears throat> Yeah, so we have this thing called NS Regular Expression now, which is a class that encapsulates, you know, performing regular expressions, compiling and uh, evaluating regular expressions. And up until that came about, which was only the last few releases, I think of, you know, it was probably oh, 10.6 or something, you know. Um, but before then, everybody who wanted to do anything with regular expressions would have to roll their own or compile in their own. Uh, support for that and you know there, there was this one popular one uh that um basically just was a wrapper around uh, a standard library that is installed on mac os 10 uh, I, I think it's called lib icu um but yeah you know people had to jump through hoops of one form or another you had to choose either to go out and find a regular expression library compile and link it into your app uh or um you know, try to interact with this native LibICU thing, which was not in Objective-C. So you'd have to, you know, stoop down to a lower level C APIs to do that.
1: So I think that this regular expression story and the and the difference between the regular expression sort of experience in Cocoa and in an open source language like Ruby or or Perl even, um, I think that, that we're going to come back to that because I think it's going to be yeah. an interesting thing to to use as sort of a, I don't know, a lens to understand the difference between the two worlds. So so I, I invited you on because uh, I think you, you have occupied a particular space in my understanding of the world that is a, a funny place for me, at least, which is you're the guy that seems least likely to be okay <laughs> with developing in a closed ecosystem like Apple by personality mm. that does. Mm-hmm. Because you know of the, the guys that I know that are you know lots of guys that I know that are programmers, you kind of people fit into categories either they're cool with the trade off of working in the sort of Microsoft ecosystem or Apple ecosystem or you know name your other enterprise ecosystem or they just can't deal right they yeah. can't deal with the the lack of control and the the um, the fact that they have to sort of wait for this big brother company to do things for them and just can't deal with it. And they have to do things that are open. And at least from listening to you on, on the internet uh, and on podcasts and what you write, it seems like you absolutely couldn't deal with, uh, you'd be one of the guys like me that can't hmm. deal with uh, it not being open yet. That's what you've done. So I want to understand kind of the, 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 experience of developing in Cocoa when things are controlled by this one company that lords yeah. over everything and, you know, w- what the upside has been that it's caused you to stick with it instead of, you know, going with what to me at least would feel like more your natural personality, which would be more open and free from the, the sort of company control route.
0: Yeah. I, I haven't really thought about that, but as you were saying that with the, the, the first thought that comes to mind is that I am forgiving of all of the closed um, lockdown nature of Apple in part because it's like home to me, right? So it's not it, – it's like you don't mind that there are locks on the door if you're inside and, and you know, you, you feel secure there. Um, there's something that's maybe a stretch of a metaphor, but to me, a lot of my behavior and my attitude towards Apple is informed by – the fact that I fell in love with the company, and worked there, and put my mental energy into really agreeing and believing with the, some core values of, of Apple's software, and um, I'll tell you what, it'll be an interesting test. because I try not to be too close-minded about other platforms and other other you know languages, you know, I looked at developing for the web. I looked at um, you know. What I haven't looked real closely at Windows because I don't actually envision myself being able to enjoy that platform. But um, uh, you know, I, I consider other platforms. I've, I've considered Android, for example. Um, similar problem there. I, 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 I'm skeptical about the overall um, experience working for me. So um, part of it is just like maybe not. Maybe home isn't the right thing as much in, in like a, a house metaphor. But maybe home, like in your and your nationality or your culture is, is more of a, of a fit. Like, hmm. Actually, I, this has come up before for me, actually, because I'm very critical of many things about the United States government, right? But I'm a United States citizen. I live here. I could enjoy living somewhere else, but I think I would always feel like this is the most comfortable place for me in the world. And um, you can be critical of it, yet still sort of take it for granted that you're going to put up with it, right? And that's sort of how I feel about Apple. I've, I've made this comparison before that I have a sort of citizenship with Apple. And I know that people in your audience who have this view of Apple fanboys, they're just like, yep, yeah, this is another one of these nuts who uh, will just like blindly say, okay, well, it's okay because it's Apple. And I don't always say it's okay, but here's the thing. I feel strongly that the, um, the platform offers – user benefits that are so great and that the developer um, environment is good enough that the, you know, I'm not going to say the developer environment is far and away better than everything else because it's not. This is why they're criticized for things like not having regular expressions in a language, right? But um, I think the user benefits and the platform as a whole so far outshines everything else out there that... um, it's kind of a you-don't-have-a-choice thing. If, if, um, if the end result of like, apps that behave in a, on, a, on a platform, on a computer, or on a device like an iPhone, if the end result is apps that, that behave as well as the best apps, and so many apps on, on the Mac and, and iOS do behave very well, um, and Apple's own apps, for the most part, behave well and interoperate with each other pretty well, if that's like your biggest priority, then you have to suck it up and accept the um, the shortcomings when it comes to closed platforms and developer languages or tools not always fulfilling you uh, all your needs.
1: Right. If you're going to develop for for OS 10 or iOS yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, I don't think, for what it's worth, I don't think your opinions are fanboyish at all. I think I think. Um, Sort of sticking so closely to Apple, I, I get how someone could see it that way. But, but I think quite the contrary. I think you've got totally original points that you make in your various, you know, online, uh, avenues. And I think it's actually, that's, that's what makes you interesting as a, as a sort of devout Apple programmer in that. Yes,
0: devout. That's a good one too.
1: <laughs> well, I think you use the word cultural. So I think we should yeah. go into mm-hmm. that a little bit more. So I think that the, an interesting thing about, the point of view you you expressed is that it's not like being familiar with Apple and having worked there and and having it feel like home enables you to to like address the issues. So it's it's not like uh, it's not like home in the way that you could fix the door, you know, to be. Right, right. It's just a familiarity. Like I think cultural was such a yeah. smart way to put cultural
0: it. Cultural is right, and it's not like home in the sense of nationhood, and that I can't vote either. Uh, Which but is can... also
1: a thing. I totally that's a good yeah. analogy. I think yeah.
0: But I can be an activist, which is something that I think um, I, I cling to. This idea that activism in the Apple sphere does have its its role, and you know I don't I don't um, I don't kid myself to think that I have the power to like change policy per se at Apple. But I can be part of a um, of a culture that, that 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 you know brings up issues and 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 causes other developers who share misgivings about the platform to feel freer perhaps or encouraged to talk about them. And eventually that stuff does add up to at least something that Apple hears and says we don't give a damn and moves on from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it is a system, it is a culture and a system of power and control and a system of um, of Apple wanting to ameliorate the the concerns of, the developers and, and its users, for that matter, uh, you know, there have been these instances where Apple has relented, and you know, sometimes for good reasons it seems, sometimes for less good reasons. But you know, when everyone was up in arms about uh, the antenna not working on the iPhone, you know, it got to them. They didn't. They, they're not just a. They're not just a stoic like we will never listen to the public type of company. They're a company that listens. I think very intensely and is very um selective about when and whether they will respond to respond publicly to the complaints of people how much
1: do you think um, your own uh, i don't know personality at this point is involved with in sort of a relationship with Apple and that like having this this uh, higher power, so to speak, to, to advocate to, and for, to some degree, but I guess advocate to, for the changes that you think would be helpful that, that, you know, part of your just day-to-day experience, your life is being in that relationship. Cause it, it seems like it either would be sort of part of your deal or ultra frustrating, you know, that, that you could, that you'd have to sort of constantly be, um, pleading to, yeah. to a company to do something, um, when you really don't have lots of control. I mean, I, I think that y- you certainly, um, exercise a pretty good amount of, um, uh, well, after it at the very least, and, and probably with some success to get some things changed, but still it would, it would feel like screaming into a, you know, Canyon to some degree, I think. Um, so back to the question. So it, it, do you think that, that there's a relationship there that, you know, this is kind of what you're used to and. And therefore, it doesn't feel bad to to have that ongoing dialogue, even though there's an imbalance of power that's pretty big.
0: Uh, yeah, you know, I think the relationship has changed over over the years. I think I was a lot more, um, I was a lot more sort of, uh, if we're using like the activist metaphor, I was a lot more militant about my activism.
1: <laughs> you were more punk
0: ass. I was more punk ass. I was more punk ass to the Daniel. Yes, uh, and part of that was. As soon as I left Apple, I had this great liberated feeling like I can say what I feel about, you know, what's going on. Because here's the thing to remember about Apple is it's made up of all these people who have strong feelings about the company and what the company should be doing. And with a company that large and that makes such kind of stark decisions, you know, um, there's going to be a significant percentage of the company, probably usually at least half that is uncertain about the choice that's been made. So, you know, you look at something and you say, like, okay, um, just, you know, speaking of languages, just recently their announcement of Swift, right? I have to imagine that there's a lot of people inside Apple who are uncertain about that future. And some of the people inside Apple with, with thousands of, of um, thousands of probably even developers, you know, obviously tens of thousands of employees, but probably thousands of, of developers by this point, um, some of them are militant anti-Swift, I'm sure, right? But they can't go out and say – write blog post saying right. my employer is making the worst decision, you know? Uh, and I'm not saying that Swift is a bad decision. But just to, as an example, every time Apple makes a decision, people inside are either euphoric about it really down about it or somewhere in between – and over the years, there were times when I was frustrated by what Apple was doing, but I didn't feel, as an employee of the company, that I had that it was tactful for one thing, or that it was maybe even pragmatic for me to uh, to speak about it. And I didn't have an audience for another thing, <laughs> so that was a.
1: You could, you could go home and speak about it. I guess. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was interesting. It made me feel more comfortable um, after leaving the company. I felt not only like I had free freedom to speak about the com- company, but at that time. You know, decreasingly, with every passing year, I have um, cre- credibility about what happens inside the company. Like about My experience of what, of what Apple is like um, becomes less and less accurate, I'm sure, every year that passes. So I haven't been an employee of Apple for 12 years. And, uh, but at the beginning, it felt like I could say things about Apple that I felt with some confidence were true. And I wasn't spilling corporate secrets or anything, but just saying, like, you know, this is – and most of the time also I'm talking about things that are positive about Apple. You know, I blogged quite a bit in the early days about the great values that Apple instilled in me. Um, right. But even, even doing that would have felt inappropriate um, in some sense, I think. Uh, now when,
1: when did you adopt the punk-ass name?
0: Um, you know that's funny. That's an old, um, that's an old AIM name. That's a AOL Instant Messenger name that um, I was. I used to always chat on things like because I, I grew up with Unix. Um, I was on the internet really early, like I think probably late eighties. Um, and how old are you, just to give? A oh, so yeah, for context, I'm thirty nine. So um, okay, I'm almost a,
1: thirty. I'm thirties. It's thirty six, so we're in the neighborhood, right? Okay. In the
0: neighborhood, so I was a you know teenager on the internet, in the late I think in the late eighties, getting on you know dial up uh, internet connections, um, and where was I going with that? So uh, you were, uh, oh yeah, so but I, yeah, so I had all these uh, <clears throat> experience chatting on things like IRC and you know Unix talk and different different chat programs on Unix, but then. Uh, at one point AOL Instant Messenger was getting popular and I had a few friends who were like, oh, you really need to get on this AIM. And I think the story is something like (laughs) me grousing about AIM in a punk ass style. And somebody said something like, oh, you're just a punk ass. So, and I said, all right, I'll get on this thing. And Daniel Punk Ass was my name. Uh, And that stuck. And it's funny because people have like, people have, like everything, people have opinions. A lot of people think, for instance, I control and I own the uh the twitter i d Jalkit, which is my last name and a lot of people think, well, why don't you just use that It's less offensive it's shorter it's um you know it's it's more professional, and I just think it's kind of a gift to have something that's a little bit thought provoking as a, a a twitter handle so I stick with the Daniel punk because it, it 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 gets people thinking. First of all, I think it makes people think, like, is this person as much of a punk ass as he seems to be? And then inevitably people find out when they talk to me in person or when they hear me on a podcast like this that, in fact, no, I'm not as much of a punk ass as the name might uh, lead you to believe. But I like that conflict sort of – of it it sort of liberates me um, to be a little bit sassier, I think, on Twitter than I might be. I'm a pretty – you know, to be honest, I'm a pretty sassy person anyway, but I do know how to be – composed and polite in many different, you know, <laughs> cultural <laughs> contexts.
1: And I think Daniel Punkass is better than Daniel Sassy, myself.
0: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, too many allusions to uh, teenage girls' magazines.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'd be super bummed if you change from Daniel Punkass. Just register, register that vote. <laughs> All right, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm going to keep it. I think I'm going to stick with it.
1: Yeah, right. I think um, I think the irony to me of the Daniel Punkass name is that you're – like, I think it's enigmatic because, like, I think in reading your stuff and listening to you seem, um, like I get the punk ass reference, like that seems to fit, but back to the the topic we started with, but you sort of defiantly stay with a corporate sponsored sort of development platform career, which is decidedly not punk ass. And <laughs> it, which was, so I don't know if, you know, it's almost like a, um like ironically punk ass, uh, you know, just to say, okay, I'm, you know, ever since the late eighties, when you were just entering the internet, you had this persona of, you know, cutting against the uh, conventional wisdom and yet, and and yet, uh, and you still do yet. You, you know, your uh, career is, is sort of rooted in the corporate world.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because, so part of the punk ass thing comes from me actually having been part of a punk culture as a teenager, you know, into my young, uh, young adulthood. Um, and here's, what's funny is among a lot of my friends in that scene, uh, because I got started at Apple very young. I started my first contract job there was when I was 18. And, um, I was still hanging out with a bunch of my friends in Santa Cruz, California, where, um, nobody else in our group at the time was, uh, Going, Work, moving w- on to working yeah working or you know they were working at you know sober it's restaurants or fast food or whatever and I'm I'm like suddenly working at Apple and so what's funny is the history of my Twitter name and my Twitter handle could have been different if I had taken their nickname for me which was corporate Dan so there's maybe the sort of the um, Yeah. That's sort of the, the, that defines the rift between the two. There, maybe
1: I get that. That totally makes yeah. sense to me. That that someone would have nicknamed you corporate dad. <laughs> yeah, right. Because that's sort of part of the. I don't know. That's part of your shtick. I think is that yeah. you know you're sassy yet I don't know viewed from a particular angle. Sort of not all that sassy. Um, yeah,
0: I'm, I, I have a business side, and that's you know, there's a, there's a, it's not a coincidence that I have my own business now and yeah, that, right, you know, making my living from that. But I like to think that I'm willing to put the um, the financial success down at least a peg from doing things the way I think that um, is right and the, the way things should be done. Um, that's always been a big part of being a business starter to me was suddenly all those things maybe I thought were, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a balance. You want to be pragmatic. You want to choose things that make money so you can keep in business. But um, the problem with I think most people who work for an employer of any size can relate to the frustration of poor decisions being made in the hope that they will lead to a greater return. Um, And one of the great paybacks of running your own show is if nothing else, you can make the decisions that you think are right. And sometimes that does mean poor return. And maybe it means in the worst case that you go out of business, but that freedom to be able to say, okay, we're going to see that part of this experiment is, can I be corporate Dan? Can I run a business? Can I take part in a closed platform with Apple? But can I do all of this and still make decisions that I think are a little bit, um, unusual for a business to make?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that that's, I think you bring up something really smart here, which is that this being a punk ass is very sort of relative to your context, you know? So, Like being a punk ass as a business owner is doing something like, you know, not doing the sneaky upcharge or recurring billing on something that maybe shouldn't be that way because you think it's the wrong thing to do. That's a punk ass in business. Whereas in your punk scene, that would be, you know, (laughs)
0: corporate.
1: (laughs) corporate, um, and I think, you know, maybe, maybe that's a, I don't know, maybe that's a lesson from your experience is that, is that, uh. If you if you have a personality like like uh, you want to be um, opinionated or a, a punk ass or sassy or however we want to say it, that one way to feel that way is to surround yourself with people that are less so.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, well like, I, no matter how punk ass you're actually being, because it just matter. You know, just I think it's the difference between your actions and the standard that's that sort of define how punk yeah. ass you are.
0: Right, one, one thing came to mind. I want to turn this around on you a little bit because um, – and this will engage your audience too. Uh, I like your approach saying, like, you know, this is a, a – um, there's a conflict here of, like, being a punk ass and working within a closed platform like Apple. Uh, here's a – here's a – here's a – not a conundrum, but here's, like, a little thought experiment for you, though. Like, with, with Ruby on Rails, um, wouldn't it be fair to say that most projects – built with Ruby on Rails in spite of the fact that um, Ruby on Rails is open source it's very accessible to anybody you know with a text editor uh, on any platform can get involved be part of this development scene but isn't it true that the vast majority of anything anybody works on with Ruby on Rails is in the service of some kind of like closed corporate uh, project like yeah, and, and and so here's an interesting suggestion for you. Um, one of the things that makes platform development for something like the Mac or iOS different, um, and, and it's not totally different. Uh, well, uh, let me let me put a, put the fact that I'm going to have a caveat here first, but it's kind of interesting that I can, as part of this closed system, make an app like MarsEdit that is my own thing that I sell directly to customers. And yes, we sort of all exist like within this greater umbrella control of a closed system. But I think it's much harder with something like Ruby on Rails to, um, to sort of like shape out what is the independent set- saleable product that would allow you to then have that kind of like freedom. Like uh, obviously there's like, Classic examples of you know web services that are like you know web apps, web to-do lists, or whatever. You know somebody like Thirty Seven Signals certainly figured out how to make an independent product with Ruby and sell it to to customers. But um, there's an element I think of. Um, you're more free as a Ruby on Rails developer in the sense that you have more control over your frameworks and the platform that you develop for. But there may be less freedom in the sense that you have less of a market to, um, to sell independently to. Boy, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that that hinges on whether you see web, uh,
1: web apps as a, a good market.
0: And yeah, yeah.
1: you know, so for, the extent to which you don't see the web apps are either themselves being a good market or that they can be built in service of a company that's in a good market, yeah, then that may be true. But I don't know that. that I don't think that that's actually true. You know, I think that the the web apps powering a um, a business is a much bigger industry than apps is. Yeah. You know, because that, that works for anything. Like, so for example, my day job is I own, uh, I own a couple of, uh, medium sized transportation brokerages and they, uh, they are built on Ruby on rails apps, like a constellation of apps to do everything from the the core management of the transportation to, to predictive pricing, to, uh, marketing of loads, you know, you name it. everything. Right. And, uh, so, and, and it's a great business and it's, you know, pretty decent size and it's built on, right. on, you know, open source software. It's, it's not a, you know, podcast app or a,
0: right. I, I, I think the people,
1: it, I, I think that when you're in the app world, you sort of view the world maybe through that lens a little strongly. Um,
0: yeah. Well, and that's a good example. I mean, I, I don't want to judge who you sell your product to you, but you're, you're describing, you know, your, your own situation is an example of being an independent software developer with Ruby on rails and having a viable, you know, and you have the freedom to sell to who you want to. And it just so happens that you sell to more to a corporate audience. Well, I
1: think, I think what you said that's right is that if you want to be in the business of selling to consumers, you're right. If you yeah. want to be in the business of selling to businesses then I, then I wouldn't agree.
0: So there's something about the culture of the Mac, and um, and, and I think to still to some extent by inheritance in the culture of iOS, that is sort of like um, it's funny. It's it's like it's sort of like the, the the kinship and camaraderie of open source, but totally closed and totally for money, right? It's like, but there's an there's a sense of like when Panic comes out with a new version of Transmit. It's, like, celebrated by the community because it's, like, this great tool that's, like, aiding the community. And everyone's able to sort of overlook the fact that it's closed source and you have to pay for it. Not everybody, obviously. But there's this sense that, um, you know, within the, within the target audience of your software, Sean, there's got to be at least a little bit of word of mouth where people are saying, like, yeah, isn't this great? But it's not like this whole community computer culture that's kind of, like, celebrating together. Like, isn't panic great? Well,
1: yeah, well, I mean, I think that in my world there are there are two different worlds that are existing without really knowing each other. So on the one hand, you've got like the the people that are buying what we sell are you know industrial companies that are looking to ship something from here to there. In other words, they don't even they don't even have any idea that they're interacting with software. Like they wouldn't think of right. it that way. Yeah, right. they, they are, but that's not. Yeah, you know, they're. It's like when you buy a plane ticket from, you know, Boston to San Francisco, you're not thinking about how the airline is a software company, right? They're an airline. So, you know, the customers, they don't even see things that way. And then there's the Ruby community or sort of more broadly the open source community that doesn't have any notion of what you're doing with this software, nor do they care. So to them, you're a developer that's both using and contributing to that ecosystem but the actual application of the stuff, it, it doesn't matter. It's a its a yep. totally different world. Whereas in the panic example that you said, the two are merged. The yep. development community and the customer community are like intermingled or at least, you know, set, they're overlapping at the very least.
0: Right. So I, I think that's one of the attractions of a closed platform like Apple's uh, is that for those of us developers for whom part of the reward is – this kind of f- direct feedback loop with enthusiastic everyday consumers um, that's one of the rewards I guess that's I'm, and I'm not trying you know I already sort of regret some of the arguments I just made but um, Oh, don't, uh, don't, I'm, I'm, I'm just, don't regret just, no no not re- well not regret but you know recognizing that I'm making these arguments uh, you know on the spur of the moment out loud uh, but I just try to get to the bottom of it because I think you do raise an interesting point there there are these balances of now, what are you giving to the community and what are you getting back? And if you look at it from the point of view of um, many open source movements, it's you have to be giving source code and you have to be getting back source code. And um, in the case of some closed platforms like Apple's, it's like, well, you're giving finished products and you're getting finished products. And it's a difference, um, and you know the Ruby on Rails community. I think, and you know other open source communities, they support. It's a it's a it's a case more of developers supporting developers through shared code, and um, I think the focus in a in a scene like mine is more of, um, it's more of developers supporting developers also being users. So we're users who happen to be able to make apps supporting the greater community of all other users on the platform. And it's just a different focus um, because, you know, there's, I think, especially with something like Ruby, and maybe I have it wrong, but my assumption would be that there's more of a focus of developing and sharing on like a module level basis, right? So it's less of a focus of sharing completed, Definitely. finished products. Yeah, and, and in fact, there would be very little. I mean, I think that there, um,
1: there that wouldn't even be that interesting. Because, like, like I was saying before, the fact that I take, you know, these hundreds of libraries and assemble them into a suite of applications that that serve the transportation business. Right. That, like, who can – they who can care? Because, I mean, it, if it was all – if everything was so coupled, that would be ugly to the community with good reason, you know, but instead it's, you know, combining, uh, you know, the – this web server and that library for geocoding and this library for making css layouts easy for mobile you know all these different things that that right. are are isolated and that isolation's nice to I mean I think that that's yeah. what the community thinks at least I and I agree
0: and well, what's interesting is that you are one um, community in one language and one framework among many that coexist on the single platform of the web right so yep. you have a situation where your community is, by definition, developer-oriented because it's that, it's that subset of the web community that, that A, are developers, and B, chose to use Ruby. Um, and whereas on the Mac, it's like because of the closed-platform nature of it, because you can't realistically develop um, Cocoa apps for other platforms, it's like well, we just got and because realistically, you can't use other languages mm-hmm. and frameworks to develop apps that run on Mac and iOS. That we have this kind of like focus on. Well, we know everybody who uses this is going to use it on an Apple product. And we know, so we can kind of can make these assumptions. Um, similar, I guess, to the whole Apple way of doing things. You know, they talk about the vertical integration, where it's like you know, Mac OS is going to run on a Mac, or and you know, uh, you know, uh, iOS is going to run on. A, iPhone or an iPad. Um, and I guess that that just sort of leads to this common ground from a user point of view that extends all the way down to common ground at the developer point of view. And whereas you can say, you can meet like a, um, a, a person who's doing really great work on the web platform and you get to talking and you got similar challenges and similar ideas of how software can be written and then you come, comes down to it and you discover, oh, you're writing in Python and I'm writing in Ruby we don't actually have much to share with each other.
1: Sure. Well, although it's, it's interesting to bring that up. I mean, I think that the web is so polyglot that, I mean, even a, even someone that would sort of self-identify as Ruby on Rails programmer would write normally in Ruby, Sass and CSS probably, maybe less instead of Sass, um, certainly JavaScript, maybe CoffeeScript instead, um, probably Bash. Yeah. You know, um, you know, shell scripting of some sort yeah, at a minimum. So minimum yeah. you're going to have those five languages and more likely you're going to add a couple others. Like maybe you write in C if you're doing something that's really performance, uh, important, that is an extension in Ruby, or, you know, maybe you have one service that's written in Rust or Java or whatever. That's memory, you know, a memory concern, but the, the, even the development, I think that the development experience is much more modular, even at the, even at the yeah. language level.
0: Right, but there's this sort of, like, um, there's this sort of like purpose segments, right? Like, yep. Ru- the purpose that Ruby serves is very similar to the purpose that Python serves. Right. So you're less likely to see, like, those two being intermingled. And like you said, you're less likely to see SAS and Less being used at the same right. time. But uh, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm just kind of free-balling free with this right now. But um, it's an interesting difference that... Uh, that there are so—I mean, I guess what I would say in summary on that is, there are so many choices you can make on the web platform that it leads to an enviable freedom of choice as far as which tools you use and how much control you have over the the frameworks. And I mean, you can choose to use a completely different framework, or you can choose to fork a framework, or just make a tweak to a framework. Right. Whereas on the Mac and iOS, we have none, none or very little of those freedoms, but the. One of the paybacks for that is we have a shared experience that is almost unanimously the same uh, across all the developers on the mm-hmm. platform.
1: All right, so I, I should do the uh, the one sponsor for the episode, and then I want to end by attempting for a handful of minutes to convince you to take on a small project in an open source language, because I'm I'm convinced, just to show my hand, I'm convinced that it would be a... Uh, really amazing experience for you, given your sort of general personality. Okay, um, okay, but we should do the uh, we should do the sponsor. So uh, Ruby on Rails podcast today is sponsored by CodeShip. Uh, CodeShip makes continuous delivery simple. Is there what's what's the equivalent of continuous delivery on the Mac and iOS? So b- by that they mean where you commit to you, you commit your code to a repository like GitHub, and then the software is automatically built and the test suites uh, automatically yeah. run.
0: Well, Apple actually came out with something over the past couple of years built into um, Xcode called Bots, but um, okay, it's fairly limited still. And I think what most people use if they're doing uh, doing uh, stuff for Mac and iOS is um, open source software, actually, as, as it happens. But, um, you know, Jenkins, formerly Hudson, is uh, – is what I think a lot of people use, but maybe this code ship is. Uh, does it
1: run? Does it run locally? So, let's say you made a change to MarsEdit, and um, you have a test suite. When you commit that change, does it build MarsEdit for like all the tar- uh, platforms of OS X that you're targeting?
0: That's the way I have it set up, but it's not local in my case. Uh, it could okay. be local, but I have it set up on. A, I have a second Mac that I use as a build server. So um, when gotcha. I commit, I do have continuous integration stuff going. But you know, long story short is it up to up to recently it has been very um, developers roll their own solution often with something like Jenkins or similar, um, and then Apple has trying to get into that game recently.
1: Okay, and before I finish the uh, the read about testing, how what's like the current state of of automated testing uh, for OS X development? Like uh, I don't know, scale of one to ten, where ten would be, uh, it's sort of a key fabric of the community, and everyone writes unit yeah. and integration tests to one being that that's super rare.
0: It's probably like six at this point. It's ge- it's been, been gradually okay. gaining in momentum, and Apple's been gradually improving the tools. Uh, Apple just recently, we, we were, they were they had basically incorporated an open source um, unit testing framework years ago, and they've just finally sort of written their own. Um, similar framework to supply with, uh, with Xcode. So it's, it's getting there. They have like specific test phases now. So like for a project in Xcode, you can say, I want to test this. Whereas before it had to be a custom kind of a, uh, build phase. Um, but now you can say, I want to test this and it does the right thing, like running the tests and, uh, stopping in breakpoints and stuff. So it's getting there.
1: Gotcha. All yeah. right. So in, in Ruby and a lot of open source, um, communities, but certainly Ruby and, and definitely Rails, too. Um, automated testing is, uh, yes. is a big thing.
0: Part of the fabric. Yeah, it's not quite there on, on the Mac or, or iOS, but it's getting more and more prevalent yeah. to, to the point where you have some teams, I think, that do treat it very seriously.
1: Yeah, So I'd say in Ruby and Rails, it's probably like on a 1 to 10, maybe a 8 or 9, as yeah. a um, how important it is to the community. Anyways, Codeship uh, makes con- a continuous delivery service that makes... Um, uh, implementing a workflow to to uh, leverage testing in your deploy process straightforward. So here's how it works. You can set up a continuous integration server on CodeShip in just a few easy steps. And then when you deploy your software to wherever it's hosted, uh, GitHub or Bitbucket usually, then their cloud service will build the app. Um, according to whatever instructions you're giving. So whether it's for a particular version of Ruby or for a set of Rubies and Rails, et cetera, they'll build the app, run the test suite on every target platform. And then if everything comes out green, then it'll do whatever you want it to. So if you want it to deploy your build then to your production servers, whether they're hosted by you or hosted by Heroku or AWS or whatever cloud service, then it'll do that. Um, so it handles the, the, the entire continuous delivery process in, uh, in the cloud. Uh, they've got a free plan that you can start with, and then setting it up takes only about three minutes. You can find Codeship at codeship.io slash 5x5Ruby. And if you use the offer code 5x5Ruby, you get 20% off any plan for three months. They've got a blog at blog.codeship.io. Where you can get updates, and I've uh, I've used CodeShip now for uh, about a month, and it's it's super. I think it's uh, exactly what it says on the tin, and a, a very nice service. So, anyways, want to thank them for sponsoring the Ruby on Rails uh, podcast again. Five by five Ruby to get your twenty percent off, and there uh, we go. Thanks for oh, that's that looks cool. I
0: like I like that kind of product where they're taking something that so many developers need and might be tempted to roll their own clunky version of, and just like making it a fully supported, like polished experience. That looks like a good, it's like a good ambition there.
1: Yeah, and especially since so many so many um, applications are hosted in um, what do you call that? Uh, there's a buzzword for this idea. Uh, Kind of like immutable infrastructures now, where mm-hmm. uh, where each server can can uh, is created once and then gets destroyed, and you know, there is no concern about having like you know your server that you have just so tuned. Um, it, continuous integration is great because uh, it builds your app from scratch every single time it runs, and that mm-hmm. ensures that you can deploy to any you know any Linux distro super easy.
0: Yeah, um, that's cool.
1: It's nice. All right, so so one thing before we get to me convincing you about um, uh, programming and open source. So I love your podcast. We should talk about that for for just a minute to plug it. Um, it's called Core Intuition. And what's the – is it coreint.org? Is that the
0: – Yeah, coreint. Yep, all one word, uh, C-O-R-E-I-N-T.org. And, uh, yeah, it's my friend Manton Reese and I, and we have been doing it, can you believe it, almost – no, over now I think six years. Wow, and um, <laughs> blows my mind. But uh, yeah, we basically talk about uh, indie software development. We are both uh, we're both stuck, Sean, in that uh, closed platform <laughs> way you of know, in the world. Manton and I both develop Mac and iOS stuff, but we you know try to keep an open mind. And oh, actually, that's
1: not that's not pejorative. I don't. There's nothing no, no, bad I, about I, it.
0: No, no, no. I like. I'm I'm kind of just teasing about it, but. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's funny. We just recorded, Manchin and I, uh, before I spoke with you today, and he, uh, he was joking with me that uh, he thinks it's funny that I'm on a Ruby on Rails podcast before him because <laughs> he's actually develops in Ruby on Rails. So put, so put him on your list, you know.
1: Well, that that, that <laughs> reminds me of my – so I've got a couple favorite things about the show. I wish it was a little longer for what it's worth, but that's uh, – Yeah. Whatever. Um, I love you goofing on man about Twitter. Love it.
0: <laughs> yeah, he needs it. You know, somebody's got to do it.
1: <laughs> so, so Manton got to quit Twitter. I don't know how long ago, maybe a year ago.
0: Yeah, over and a year. Yeah.
1: Well, you guys have a bet about that, right?
0: Yeah, I said he'd be back on Twitter within five years. Um, I don't <laughs> think the stakes are very high. I don't. I think it's going to be bragging rights if it happens.
1: You're but. definitely going to win it, though.
0: I think so, but, you know, it's hard to bet against Manton Reese's um, resolve when it comes to – he's like me in a sense in that we are righteous SOBs. <laughs> you know, it's like we um, we get on a high horse and we stick with it, and he sort of sealed his own way out of, um, of Twitter by ending his Twitter feed with some very um, – you know, some commemorative – Posts about Steve Jobs and philosophy, and and um, it was meaningful to him in a way that I think he wrote his last tweets on Twitter in a way that will encourage him never to bury those with additional tweets. Well, if so there was see. a
1: second. If there was a secondary market for your wager, I would, I would bet. You get yours. in. Okay. I would bet All on right. yours. Right. Well, I think that that's. I think the magic of the show, actually, of core intuition is that you you and Manton seem actually quite different, but you share this, uh, um, what was the word you just used? Sort of passion, uh, stubbornness. Uh, uh
0: yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't remember the exact word, but yeah, it's the high horseness. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. You, you both are like stubbornly passionate and sort yes. of have a high horse and yet stay wedded to, to Apple. Yes. And, which is fascinating because, you know, you could like in an alternate universe, you both could say, screw this. I'm done with. I'm done with having to beg for something like regular expressions or or the, the app store approval process or whatever the grape of the day is. You know, I'm I'm doing it on my own. Uh, but that's not ever what happens. It's like it's like a sitcom where you know it's, it's you know the actual nemesis is sort of part of the joke, so it has to stay around.
0: Yeah, and I think it's funny. I've teased Manson too because there is an element uh, of his departure from Twitter that could have as easily been applied to. Apple, you know, if, if if his ire at the moment had been, you know, slightly greater for Apple and maybe if the consequences of leaving Apple, I guess, weren't as, as great, um, you know, you could have seen him walking out on, on Apple. But um, because I think
1: his grievance is stronger with, or at least as strong with Apple.
0: I, think uh, I don't think so. No, no? He, he, he feels personally betrayed by that one. Instance in time. Here's the here's the funny thing, too.
1: Oh, about think, the tokens thing, though. With, yeah,
0: yeah, it feels portrayed as a developer. Um, and it's kind of a funny thing because I think both man and I agree that Twitter is, on the whole, a pretty, you know, admirable and, like, a company that's not doing harm in general. Uh, and I think what happened for him is he just got – it's it's like he just got his – it, 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 it's it's personal, right? It's like somebody right. saying something rude to you at dinner and you just say, you know what? I know that person's a nice guy, but after what he said to me, I can never go back to dinner at his house again. And you might even like respect what that person does and support what they do. And they're maybe like have the same values as you, but you just can't bring yourself to go back to the dinner table.
1: So it's like if his app got rejected or Sherlocked or something yeah then uh, maybe it would be equivalent, but since it didn't i I get how twitter would would be the bigger offender
0: of yeah it too and I think there's a big aspect of it, which is that he just feels like he can he can live his life without Twitter more easily than he can live his life without
1: apple's platforms. <laughs> so. I like when he so I've heard episodes where you've sort of brought up this point and uh and I think for what it's worth that Core intuition is a show where maybe some of it is time sensitive, but if someone was new to it and uh Uh, wanted to get a feel, you could go back and listen to old episodes and they'd be pretty good. Yeah, we
0: sort of use current events as an excuse to go down um, philosophical lines of thinking, I guess. Uh, Which I agree, it it usually is fairly timeless, I think, because it's it's kind of funny going back and listening. You can go back now and listen to stuff that's, you know, before... um, before, I think, well, obviously before the Mac App Store, but maybe even our first episodes were before the
1: iPhone. it um, be pretty close.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you can go back now and like all these major events that happened in Apple's history it will be like, oh, what do you think about this idea of a phone that you can, <laughs> can write apps for? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah some of it's kind of interesting, but yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for listening to the show. It's fairly fun to do. I agree with you sometimes I wish it was longer, but um, it's sort of a funny situation we're in because a lot of people appreciate that it's short and the good news uh, of it being short, you know it's usually 30 to 40 minutes. Um, the good news of that is that it's a little bit more inviting to listeners to just give it a try. so
1: yeah I think in so. that
0: respect, I think it's something you can you can try with minimal risk.
1: I'm surprised that Manton doesn't give you a harder time about not having released an iOS app yet.
0: I know he should, right, to balance out all the teasing idea of him. But that just reflects probably that he's a nicer guy than me.
1: <laughs> well, you're kind of relentlessly picking on him, which is my favorite part of the show by a mile. <laughs> and, and he always takes it and doesn't really hit back, which is also
0: my favorite part of the show. Yeah, we have a dynamic. It's an interesting, It's an interesting dynamic. I don't think I could get along so hostily with anybody else for such a long period of time. Well, I think that that's my –
1: this actually came up last episode. My favorite uh, internet personalities are those that uh, give hell to the people that they're on shows with yet seem ultra likable. It's like John Syracuse is like brutal. Right, right, right. right, To to Casey in particular. To Casey, yeah. To Marco to some degree. And and really to anyone else he ever talks to, I think it would be sort of fair.
0: Well, Uh, he he can't abide uh, violations of the John Syracuse code.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah in, independent of how that may make one yeah. feel in the moment, <laughs>
0: right?
1: And you sort of, you sort of do that with Manton, which is which is fun.
0: Yeah, it's fun.
1: Well, here's the way to, to close off. So you you guys have a sort of business related to core intuition that is built at least in part on, in Ruby, right? Oh, the we do. Yes, job, actually. Singapore. Yes. So
0: speaking. Yeah. Speaking of Manton, like I said, he's done a lot of Ruby. He's done some Ruby on Rails stuff. Actually, he backed away from Ruby on Rails intentionally when he developed this job board um, software. So it's a Sinatra hmm. am I saying all the buzzwords right? Sinatra, Sinatra um, that's right. Yeah. node node.js, uh all this other sh- all this other junk that I don't know what what it does.
1: Wait, he but, it's a node app? To, what 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 does he use node for?
0: Um huh. there's some like little thing he it's Sinatra Node.js let me bring it up here, and then uh, uh, if I don't slow down the podcast here too much, let's see. Because um, it's kind of interesting, actually, and and there was something interesting I did. So, so what you were sort of, I think, moving towards is acknowledging that I have done a little bit of uh, Ruby work, and that it was on this jobs board, but the first thing I had to do to make it palatable to me was – to make an Xcode project,
1: <laughs> which is hilarious. I remember you talked about that on <laughs> <in> the episode.
0: <laughs> so I needed to get this open stuff into some kind of proprietary format so I could work on it. No, but it's a it's a workflow thing. So I'm so used to this build and run mentality that I'm used to with building Mac and iOS apps. So I put all this stuff into a Xcode, and then I have all I had to I had to like sort of convince Xcode to do all the steps to build the thing and. Um, Here's all the different kinds of things it uses. It uses it has unicorns. It has <laughs> uh, something called unicorn. Something well, well so called, this will
1: be fun. So let's test if you, like which of these you really know what they are. So,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Because yeah. <laughs> I bet you know more than you're going to let on. To. Uh, okay, what is unicorn?
0: I have no idea. It's no web, idea what unicorn it's is. It's
1: the web server.
0: Okay, good. Uh, this is good. You can teach me a little bit here. Um, we've also got some, uh, like I said, we got Sinatra. I get Sinatra. Sinatra is the thing that makes it so you can have like, you know, declarative definition of what different URLs routes. Yeah.
1: Like makes the routes. easier. Yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 Sinatra is the thing that you wish was rails two months after you made the decision to go Sinatra. <laughs> That's my definition. Of Sinatra. <laughs> you
0: mean, you mean as you start to yearn for all the things that are missing from it? <laughs>
1: yeah. Like, yeah. like I think the percentage of Sinatra apps that, uh, that, at some point in their life, will 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 have the moment where everyone goes, "Why didn't we make this Rails?" Is like ninety nine point nine percent.
0: Really? Okay, that's good to know. Uh, and uh, I don't know what we got some Redis thing going on in here.
1: Well, Redis is usually used for in Rails apps for background jobs. So okay. something like if you are charging a credit card or sending emails or
0: right, it probably uses it to um, power the. Uh, credit card somehow mm. so yeah we've got all kinds of stuff in here <clears throat> i got it all set up uh oh i use this tool uh i guess it's called the bundler and uh bundles together all of the uh dependencies
1: which is know? genius side note yeah.
0: yeah it's good and then uh i was able to learn a few things like i got um i got some kind of like uh automatically reload your uh ruby code back into memory as you're using it no would you use
1: guard is that what you use for that
0: uh, no, I don't think so. Something S- else.
1: Spring, Zeus.
0: Those don't ring a bell. That's, uh, <clears throat> something. something so, how,
1: how brutal was it to, for you to sort of jump into this, this Sinatra app and have any idea of how to build anything? Like scale of one
0: to yeah, ten? Yeah. Mm, I guess it's probably just a five or so. It was... I'm pretty I'm – pretty, here's the funny thing about me is I'm pretty adaptable because although I've been using Objective-C as my main language for years and years and years, I do, um, for example, I implement my own uh, web store on my site in, uh, in Python. Um, hmm. And it's funny. I, <laughs> the first thing I did when I got hold of this thing, like I said, I made an Xcode project, and then I made a Python script to build <laughs> – all the Ruby stuff. So I got this. I'm looking at it right now. It's called like you know local dot py. And it like builds my like local build of all the of all the stuff. But uh that represents that um I happen to be more familiar with Python than with uh with Ruby. But you know, they're close and close enough in, in conceptually that I I'm not gonna be afraid if I see some some Ruby code. Um so it was not too bad. And, you know, actually having the strong sort of um, philosophy of something like Sinatra to work with, it gave me, you know, I, I basically just had to look at, oh, okay, this has got kind of like a model view controller thing going. And um, Manton had already started the project, so he had given me sort of context for how to approach this. Right. Um, the conventions are pretty strong to your point. Yeah, Right. Yeah. So I didn't have too much trouble with that. The things that you know would bite me would just be like, you know, classic learning a new language stuff, where you're just like, "Come on, there's got to be a way to <laughs> pass this argument to this function, but it's not working." You know, it's
1: like, <laughs> right? Things right. like that. So let's take a let, let's uh, end by predicting what the next new app. Uh, will be that you release? Will it be in Cocoa for iOS or <coughs> OS OS X, or will it be on the web? What do you What do you think? Oh, uh,
0: I don't know. I've given up. Um, I've given up predicting that Mars Edit for iOS will be anytime soon. Uh, and hopefully, at some point down the down the road, I'll have this like m- seemingly masterful release of it when everyone's least expecting it. But uh, <laughs> that's like, always
1: like Dwarf Fortress was updated today. <laughs> This is like this would be your Dwarf Fortress. I think everyone assumed that that game was permanently in the last state, and then today, two years after,
0: oh yeah, the okay. last release,
1: that's, there's a new Dwarf Fortress. So
0: there's some something to be said for that, you know, just dropping the bomb on people
1: <laughs> like, like Beyonce with her album. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it, it, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't, for, I don't foresee doing much um, like a web app or anything like that, but. You know, since you mentioned like me getting involved in open source projects, et cetera, um, I'm actually somewhat involved in a large, you know, in I'm involved in a larger number of open source projects than you might assume, and that probably most um, Mac developers are. So, here's one one big example: is um, I use Tiny MCE. You familiar with that?
1: Is it's, uh, that is that the um, rich text editing?
0: Yeah, that's a rich. Te- it's an open source. Uh, it's an LGPL uh, open source JavaScript based rich text editor. It's cross platform for you know cross browser. Um, the frankly, if I may say so myself, clever, pragmatic choice I made when adding rich text to MarsEdit, a native Mac app, is that I decided to build it upon Tiny MCE. So um, you know when you run my native Mac web blog editor, you're actually running in the editor portion of that, the rich text editor, you're running a bunch of JavaScript. Um, so I have my hand in JavaScript to the extent that I, I, um, I adapt that to my needs. I also, you know, more and more frequently I've been trying to keep, to be more diligent about submitting my changes back to them. So I have some involvement with that. That's, um, that's great. So you have submitted patches back? To yeah, them? yeah. And they've been gracious about uh, incorporating those. So um, yeah actually you know on if you go to my uh, github.com/danielpunkass you will find that i have probably a larger number of <laughs> cloned repositories than you would expect um most of them have no changes uh, probably because i kind of just have a uh a habit of cloning things when i think i might do something uh but you know i have some weird little things out there like um uh and i share stuff when i can um well, I'm just looking down my list here. I have this, like, quick login for WordPress that gives uh, WordPress users the same ability as Squarespace users have to press the escape key to easily log in to your uh, to your blog. Um, That's cool. Yeah. And I got other stuff. I actually, speaking of unit testing, I have a few little, like, uh, testing conveniences for OS X. Um, I worked with um, – I worked on a, um, a multi-markdown library for the Mac that um, – used to rely on a bunch of crazy third-party libraries. And I, you know, winnowed it down to something more compact. <laughs> um, there's actually some pretty successful and um, widely used open-source libraries on the Mac. Like, you've probably heard of Sparkle. Uh, it's a software update mechanism. I don't oh. know if that yep. Isabel. a mm-hmm. bell. And the vast majority, you'll you'll notice this if you use a Mac, and I know most Ruby developers do use Macs, uh, you'll notice that when you get a software update from within an app, it almost always looks identical to every other app. And that's nothing to do with Apple. Um, Apple has not offered an automatic software update mechanism until the App Store. So whenever you have an app itself saying, hey, I've got an update. Do you want to download that? That's thanks to this project called Sparkle, which is um, – you know, it's been neglected for a long time, but it's, um, it's still nonetheless something that most Mac developers have, uh, have used to supply that, that behavior. It's funny. You even see things like, uh, so you download the newest Java from, uh, I guess it's, o- who owns that now? Oracle. I guess. Oracle. Yeah. And you see, <laughs> would you like to update to the latest Java? And it's a sparkle dialogue. So that thing's, uh, <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Far and wide it's been adopted. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so there's some cool stuff out there, but um, here's the thing. I, I guess my adi- my attitude, I'm actually, in, in this sense, more compatible with the Ruby on Rails mentality in that the stuff I share is usually on the modular level, and it's like stuff like, okay, this is something I can actually package up and share with people, and it will help them. Um, and I don't share as much as I could, but, um, again, this sort of problem of how much you want to get your stuff into a shareable format. Right. There, like there, there's
1: some like gem equivalent for um, cocoa right like a, like a package library distribution
0: yeah it's called cocoa pods mm-hmm. and I have not used it extensively um, it, it's an interesting project because it, it goes a little step further than it goes a little step further than most package managers I think do in that it takes on the task of modifying your Xcode project files to automatically add the um the build phases, and to integrate the packages you selected. And obviously this makes it easy to adopt, and a lot of people are really excited about that. And other people, perhaps me leaning more towards this camp, are a little bit like, keep your hands off my project file. Uh, so its um, I'm sure that it's possible to use it without that functionality. But it is, regardless of what problems I may have with how sort of invasive it is, um, it is an, a a wonderful example of how open source mentality and that movement is you know making its way into the Apple developer world.
1: It sounds like it's like a combination of Ruby gems and Bundler. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, it sounds. I think so because I've noticed that with Bundler, how it will um, it'll sort of like automatically update the um, the build, like the, the, the make file or something. Gem yeah, file. The gem file.
1: .lock. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah. Well, I'm not surprised at all that you have contributed to open source because uh, I love when you go on your rants on Twitter about um, submitting bugs because that's very open source sort of centric philosophy that, you know, you have to submit the issue. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's interesting when that doesn't seem like necessarily shared by some of your –
0: no, it's a very divisive issue.
1: <laughs> but it's, it's not at all divisive in open source, so it's fun to hear it talked about in a yeah. different area where it, it's not the standard. And I understand why it's not, because yeah. you know, there's not as much control. You know, I, I, If you're just submitting issues into a pile of radars that you, you don't have visibility into, that would be frustrating.
0: Yeah, well, it's the same problem that you have with some open-source projects where you submit, say, a pull request or something, and it's not just that they decide not to take it. They just ignore it, and you never hear anything back. (laughs) Right. So that phenomenon exists in open-source as well as in closed-source. But the difference in open-source, obviously, is you can continue on your merry way using using your patched version, (laughs) whereas with Apple stuff, often, you know, if you're lucky, you've found a workaround, but if you haven't, then... You're stuck with uh, missing behavior or functionality, and you you have no no recourse. You just sit there and waiting and hoping that one day Apple will respect the the plea to fix it and choose to do so. But um, I just can't get I can't get on the same page with developers in the uh, Mac and iOS realm who who sort of cop out of any responsibility for filing bugs solely based on the experience that their bugs have never been have never led to sort of like very clear results that can easily be credited to their report yeah. right they, it, they want they want to have apple come out shake them on the hand give them a gold medal you know maybe even announce it to the world how great they are for re- reporting a bug and it just doesn't work that way you know
1: i'm with um, you it sort of seems antisocial. you got to you got to yeah, contribute books
0: it's, it's the it's the price of admission really i mean it's a it's the price of admission at least to complaining about the books right it's <laughs> kind of like it's kind of like voting right I mean, you know complain about the elected officials but at least vote first so you have a little bit of credibility
1: that's how i felt about that third hunger games book that i hated the book so bad just really hated it but I had to finish it, or else I wouldn't be able to complain. You wouldn't be
0: able to complain about it, right? <laughs> so I, oh, that's
1: I, good. I grudge read that book and then have bitched about it. For, <laughs>
0: ever since. Yeah, you get a lot of credibility by because a, we all know that that's the worst thing. Like, okay, Ruby on Rails developers, don't you hate it when people are, who have never written a line of Ruby code say, "Well, I could never use Ruby for this project because Ruby's too slow" or "Ruby's too." you know, I don't know, opinionated. Right. And it's like, well, you can't really make that complaint until you at least look at the language. And it's similar with, um, with pretty much anything you could think about griping about online, right? Do you, do you feel the same
1: about Stack Overflow? Are you a active member of that community too?
0: I really, I really admire Stack Overflow and I'm not a very active member of the community. Uh, it's more just comes down to not having found a way to sort of, here's the, here's the problem with Stack Overflow. I think it got too successful without, um, <clears throat> affording users the desired level of selective engagement, right? So like, I would like to be able to say, look, I can't actively keep up with the entire Cocoa tag, but I would like to keep up with this list of 20 users who are going to be involved in Cocoa discussions, and that's sort of against the um, the ethic I think of Stack Overflow so I grant that but the trade off is if I can't act, you know control and limit my exposure to the firehose of Stack Overflow then I'm inclined to just not use it at all. Yeah. Right? so I use it as a search for results and then you know um, sometimes I'll ask a question there and then if I'm feeling like particularly at-ins for what to do with myself. Maybe I'll just glance at the latest stuff and see if there's something I can answer. But, uh, mostly I, I, I think it's a genius product and I think it's a great service to all developers, but I do find a little problem engaging with it in a way that, that I can still sort of like limit how much of my time and, and attention goes to it.
1: I use the same philosophy you do. I, I figure I have enough questions where, uh, I think the one thing that I stick to is if I hit a problem while developing something that was at anything but me being stupid, or even if it was me being stupid in a way that I could imagine others being stupid too, then I search to see, once I figured out what the problem was, I search to see if there's a question that either doesn't Mm. have a great answer or um, doesn't have an answer. And sometimes, sometimes if the question doesn't exist, if I think it was a particularly good one, I'll... At it, but I tend to do that. But I'm with you, I, I it's too much to try to deal yeah. with the point chasing because I don't really get that. I don't, I don't care if I've got high points on Stack Overflow, but I think it's nice to contribute
0: absolutely. And I think they would benefit actually from supporting on some level sub communities of people who are who are you know the answers don't have to be private, but wouldn't it be great if um, you know you could you could just sort of flag a bunch of people as being part of a community that's m- maybe more dedicated to answering each other's questions than to the fire hose and then everyone would still benefit from the answers it's just that i think it might engage people to feel like it's it's kind of like um you know irc or something like i want to go into a little group that is talking about something very specific um and and it's a similar problem like you can go into irc and you can go into like the ios development chat room and it's like ten thousand people or something and it's like i'm not going to hear anything here that's specific enough to what I want to talk about. It makes sense to support, like, you know, California iOS developers even, right, or Montana iOS developers. Just give yourself a little sub-community that you're more liable to sort of build a relationship with specific people in, right. and uh, I think that would help.
1: Well, you've been super generous with your time. Um, it's been fun to me, so I, I my goal was to get out of the echo chamber of, of rails development and have someone that seemed to share the sort of ethos of the community, but not be part of it in a, in an interesting way. And I think, I think you were, uh, super interesting and, you know, I, I appreciate it.
0: Well, I really appreciate being on the show. Hopefully, uh, to the audience, I, I, uh, haven't been, uh, too much of a diversion, but I do want to say I respect Ruby uh, quite a bit. And it's just a sort of a coincidence. It's a historical coincidence that I know, Python, but I still have it on my list to get more familiar with, with Ruby, <laughs> and I and I like that it is such an opinionated um, community of developers. Uh, that's I think one of the greatest assets of of what I, what I perceive anyway as the community, um, and that's a good thing. So so keep that go <laughs> forward and keep doing things your way because you know somebody's got to do it your way, and it might as well be you. Yeah,
1: right. All right, well, we've, we've plugged your Twitter handle, but might as well uh, do that again. And then why don't you give a, just a brief advertisement for what you're selling these days?
0: Oh, sure. So on Twitter, I am DanielPunkAss. Uh, all three words, uh, or two words, I guess, depending on how you think about it, munched together. And uh, I mentioned at the opening of the show, I run a little software company, Red Sweater Software. And you can find that online at red-sweater.com. Um, I also, as we mentioned, record a little indie software podcast at coreint.org, and I have a personal blog at bitsplitting.org and and another podcast associated with that, which you can go catch up with some cool interviews with. uh, you know, not just Mac and iOS people, but uh, people from the greater tech world. I interviewed about 10 people so far on that podcast. So.
1: They, they were really good. I listened to those last Oh, year. good.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. It's just a lot of, as you know, it's a lot of work to uh, to do uh, interview podcasts. So um, hope to get back to it someday, but maybe sometime after I ship Mars Edit for iOS. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, that'll be a while.
1: Huh? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm barely known on Twitter if someone wants
0: to. Connect with me there, and uh, thanks a bunch.